the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's Friday. We made it through another week. The Lord is to be praised. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. That's 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. Please remember, we love your live calls. It makes the program more interesting. Uh, you can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the KSLR free mobile app. Just hit the call now button. You'll be connected directly to our producer in the studio. Hey, because it's Friday, we got a lot going on here. Weekends, you know, everybody else is getting off. It's time for everybody to enjoy themselves and rest and relax on the weekend. Well, this is when we get to work. And as Christians, we've all got a work day coming up. If you're in church tonight, you're in church tomorrow, you're in church on Sunday, whatever that day, that day is, it's a work day. It's a time to serve the Lord. Go to church. Be an answer to somebody's prayers. Uh, be willing to be used by God to comfort somebody who really needs it. Let somebody know that you care about them. If somebody looks like they're hurting, be God's messenger and let them know how much he loves them. That'll change everything about your church experience. And that's what the church is supposed to be. Well, because uh, for us anyway, here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, because it's Friday, we're going to be meeting tonight, uh, Acts chapter 1. We're going to finish the chapter. This will probably be the smallest Friday night crowd that we've had in a very, very, very long time. Uh, because all of our kids are at camp and we got like a hundred adults there as well. Uh, I love the fact that so many people are serving out at the kids in the youth camp. Thank you all for your prayers. Keep them in your prayers. They come home tomorrow uh, a little bit afternoon. Uh, and so far we have, they have very little communication up there. The cell phone signals and, and uh, internet are, are really, really sketchy where, where the camp is. So uh, all I can tell you is no news is good news. Everybody's safe. The bus got up there, and I appreciate very, very much your prayers. Um, but it's always a neat thing to see what the Lord is going to do. So tonight, Acts chapter 1, we're going to finish it. Uh, it might be a good night for some of you radio listeners to come and visit because there will be room in the sanctuary, to be sure. Uh, and then, of course, on uh, Sunday here at Calvary Chapel, we're going to do just one verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. You know, we have been now for many, 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 many months going through the first seven chapters of the book of Romans. And now we we come to the pinnacle of our New Testament. I mean, we come to this glorious place where where it's life in the Spirit. It begins with no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And I am excited about it. We're going to do just one verse uh, this week. And then we'll come back and hit it again on the following Sunday. So lots going on. Um, be a part of the people of God who go to work on Sunday. One more time, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We'd love to have them. Here is a question from Kirby from our email inbox. 
What did David fear from the sword of the Lord in 1 Chronicles 21, 29, and 30 if his intent was to go before the tabernacle of the Lord in Gibeon uh, with a repentant heart? And then another question, was the meaning of the angel's extended hand in verse 16, meaning that God was protecting Jerusalem itself, as we see in verse 15, while judgment fell on the rest of Israel? Uh, I can answer the second question first. Uh, uh, the answer is no. Um, uh, this is a great sort of a backstory, uh, and in in the verse sixteen that you asked about, uh, David saw the angel of the Lord. Now, by the way, whenever you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, that's Jesus standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword in his hand extended over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell down. Now, the extended hand of Jesus over uh, the people in Israel, uh, over Jerusalem, was simply a hand of judgment. Um, This was a response to uh, a terrible sin of David. I'll talk about it as I answer the first part of your question. But that his hand was extended over Jerusalem um, the, the response that David and the elders of Israel at the time had was that they fell face down sackcloth. Sackcloth is an ancient um, um, symbol of mourning. And they fell face down seeking the Lord, uh, asking God to forgive them. Uh, and their hearts were truly repentant. And, of course, that's when the angel of the Lord uh, was sort of called away. Judgment was stopped at that particular point. Uh, the verse just before this, Kirby, says, And God sent an angel. Now, we know it's the angel of the Lord. But as the angel was doing so, the Lord saw it and was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then standing at the threshing floor of Arnah, the Jebusite. Now, here's the whole passage here. Um, David, in his own pride, uh, had the troops of Israel numbered. He was even warned by his generals not to do this. Why would you do such a thing? And the idea here is that David had always been given great victories by the Lord. And by counting his troops, what he was doing was saying, let's see how strong I am. In other words, I don't need the Lord. I have this mighty army. Let's see how strong I am. And this was a grievous sin. Now, remember, I've said this before in this program, that when you read the accounts of the kings, that's sort of the perspective of the story from earth view. But Chronicles is God's perspective. It's sort of heaven's view of the events going down. So we get some explanations in Chronicles. And God was so displeased that David, after all of the victories that God had given him, that David was now kind of in his pride, sticking his chest out and thinking, I'll take credit for this one. Um, And that's why the judgment came. This is one of the great passages of Scripture where uh, David goes to Aaron. He sees the judgment happening. People are dying, uh, and it's his fault. And he goes to the judgment floor, or to, I'm sorry, to the threshing floor of Aaron. And he says, "Let me buy your your threshing floor." And Aaron says, "Oh no, King, you live forever. Um, um, I'll give it to you." And David made this great statement. And this is something every Christian ought to have tattooed on our brain. David said, no, I will not give that to the Lord, which costs nothing. And so he paid the full price. He didn't even try to bargain. He paid the full price. And he got the threshing floor. He offered the sacrifice. And God then began to withhold judgment. And the reason God, Kirby, withheld judgment is because judgment, according to Isaiah 28, is a strange work to God. It grieved him. Now, let me take just a minute with this, because we, we often think of God's judgment. We, we so cavalierly at times talk about people going to hell. It breaks God's heart to judge people. It literally breaks his heart. And it's the one thing that he would do anything to avoid. In fact, he sent his son to die to avoid having to judge anybody. But because people refuse, judgment must come. But we should never, ever be happy about it. We should never, ever say, well, you know, they got what was coming to them. When people get judged, it's our responsibility to share God's heart. And it grieved God's heart. So this was one of those things where this was a a self-inflicted wound. David did a terrible thing by counting the troops of Israel. And in the process of counting the troops, um, Kirby, he he was taking glory that God won't share. So that's the backstory in First Chronicles 
uh, chapter 21. But never forget that although our loving Jesus is a hand that protects, and he is a heart that loves, he's also the hand that will judge. All judgment has been given to me by my Father in heaven. And so when his sword drawn was extended over the people of Jerusalem, it was no doubt a sword of judgment. Great question. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls. Here's a question from our mobile app from Nacho. Uh, Nacho says, why did Jesus choose only the three rather than all 12 disciples to witness his transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, verse 1? Uh, the Transfiguration is it appears, of course, in all the Gospels. It's it's one of those really, really significant stories, uh, and very few of them appear in every Gospel. This is one of them that does. Now, as to the question, why did he choose only three, we don't have the answer to that. But we know that Jesus had an inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Um, I can speculate, Nacho. I, you know, John, I know he was included because uh, John called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's his own self-proclaimed title. Uh, and God loves those who love him. John was a young man, the youngest of all of the apostles or the disciples at the point. And, and he was really, really, I mean, he loved Jesus. And God knew his heart. James, maybe because James was going to see, uh, be the first apostle martyred for his faith. He was going to be beheaded by Herod. And maybe Jesus was just giving him sort of previews of coming attractions of what he would see. And Peter, maybe the reason Peter was part of the inner circle is because Peter would be the one that will really usher in the church age with, uh, on the day of Pentecost and be used to, to, to preach this wonderful sermon where 3,000 people got saved. And he's going to be primarily in the early part of the church history, God's spokesman. So those are only speculations and there's really very little value in uh, asking the question, why? What is important here, Nacho, is this. We need to look at this and say, we want to be one of Jesus' inner circle. We don't want to be on the outside looking in. We want to be up close and personal with every wonderful thing that God was going to do. You know, it was only these three who got to go in and see him raising the young girl from the dead. It was these three uh, who, who were invited to go deeper into the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, and of course, as you point out, it's these three who were invited to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration, see something that impacted the rest of their lives. We know that because both John and Peter write about it very, very late in their ministries, late in their lives. So it was really, really important. Again, the application for everybody listening today is this. We want to be the disciple whom Jesus loves. We want to be the one that never gets left out of anything. We want to be as close as we possibly can. If you make that the goal of your life, I promise you, you will see things and experience things and your life will be filled with joy even through difficult times. And you never, ever want to miss that. It's the reason I stay so close to Jesus. I, I don't want to miss out on anything. I don't want to mess up anything. And the only way to do both of those things is to be with Jesus every single day, as, as minute by minute, if that's what it takes to get close to Jesus. You'll see things that Peter and James and John were able to see. So, he had an inner circle, and that's the only explanation that we're given in Scripture. hope that makes sense to you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a critical sort of anonymous question. Uh, don't you think it's unfair when Christians say people who don't believe in Jesus are going to hell? How do they know and why do Christians think they're the only ones who deserve heaven? Anonymous, I'm going to be very, very direct, but, but I'm doing this lovingly to you. You won't know the answers to these questions until you give your heart to Jesus. Are you listening to a radio program that is about the Bible? The Bible is all about Jesus. And that means you need to get saved. You see, if you knew Jesus, you'd understand that we who are Christians don't think we deserve heaven at all. We who are Christians know we don't deserve heaven and never will. And since Jesus is the only possible way to get to heaven, 
He gives us his righteousness. He exchanges our sin, our filth, and then gives us his perfection because perfection is the standard of heaven. So if you don't want to believe in Jesus, Anonymous, the only way to get to heaven is to be perfect. And I don't mean be pretty good. I don't mean be better than other people. I mean perfect. And that's why Jesus offers you, as he offered me 26 years ago, his perfection. And I was the biggest sinner in the world. I am so aware, Anonymous, that I don't deserve heaven. I deserve to be judged. I deserve to be cast into hell. But God, he rescued me. I asked him to forgive me, and wonder of wonders, his answer was, yes, I'll forgive you. And so I know I don't deserve heaven. Now, you're also right when you say that we say, we Christians, if you're really a believer, we tell people because we love them that they're not going to go to heaven if they're not a born-again Christian. I'm not talking about a religious, professing Christian. I'm not talking about a good person from another religion. Unless a man be born again, he will in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. Those are Jesus' own words in John chapter 3. And the only reason we know that nobody but born-again Christians are going to be in heaven is because only Jesus offers that perfection that I spoke about. Here's something you can try anonymous. Look at your life honestly. Are you perfect? I don't mean are you basically a good person at heart or that you mean well. Are you a perfect person? If not, and we know the answer. If not, Jesus wants to make you one. He will give you his righteousness. And the minute he gives you his righteousness, he'll begin the process of making you more and more like him every day. So the truth is, we Christians, we're not any better than anybody else. It's just that we're forgiven. And since forgiveness only comes by the blood of Jesus Christ, there's no other way to get to heaven. My final thought is this. People say, well, how do you know for sure? And you did. You said, how do they know? Well, here's how we know. Jesus died. He was a real person. Historically, the evidence is overwhelming. He was crucified on a Roman cross. There is no historical doubt about that fact at all. Equally compelling is the evidence that he didn't die. He rose from the dead just as he said he would thus proving that he alone is God. That validates everything Jesus said, Anonymous, and he said he was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Let's go to Troy calling online one. Troy, thanks for the call. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor Ron. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Troy. Thanks. Um, my wife and I, we read uh, Philippians aloud yesterday. It was, it was really good because I've heard you recommend that you read the Bible out loud at times because it's, uh-huh. it's such a rich pers- perspective and I was able to just grasp so much. I know everybody talks about the, the great verses that are in the Bible, that are in Philippians. It's, I could do all things through Christ who strains me, be, be anxious for nothing, but the whole book itself was very enlightening. And so I'm going to read it again today, but I was wanting to know if you could give a little background on the book. I probably could go online and look at it, but I learn better, and I'll remember more uh, hearing it come from you. So if you don't mind, sir, just a little background on the book or any interesting facts that you might have about it. I, I can, Trey. Thanks very much, and thanks for taking my advice. You know, as a pastor, sometimes we get a little frustrated because people ask a lot of questions, but they don't take our advice. And uh, Philippians is just one of those books. Um, you know, the, the overarching theme is joy, and we have to remember that Paul wrote this book from prison. Uh, Troy, one thing you might do before you read it tonight is uh, go to Acts chapter 16 and read about uh, Paul's visit to Philippi. Read the background. He was thrown in jail. Uh, he was uh, he and, and Silas were so severely beaten, flogged, and they were in stocks. 
um, uh, a great earthquake. They were rescued by, by a great earthquake. They, they, they knew their time was up. They decided to sing hymns to God. And the earth began to shake and the chains came loose. And because a Philippian jailer would have been executed for losing his, his prisoners, no matter the circumstances, he was about to kill himself. And Paul and Silas, had, they didn't go anywhere. They stayed there. And so they stopped him, and they shared Jesus with him, and he and his family got saved. So it's a great, great, great book. Now, here's something that we need to understand about Philippians. When, when we have those things, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, immediately we buy that, and we put a magnet verse on our, on our refrigerator. We buy a plaque and put it on our wall. But the context of that is enduring suffering. Paul was writing that from a Roman prison. We would think, well, if he's in a prison, then God must not be with him. He must have done something. No. He says, what's turned out for me, because of my chains, the gospel has been furthered. The gospel has been advanced. And many, he said, because of his chains, had been emboldened on their own to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom even more boldly than before. So this was clearly God's plan. He wrote the prison epistles, what we call the prison epistles, from that Roman jail and how many lives have been transformed over the, the, the thousands and thousands of years as a result of what Paul went through for us. I can suffer. I learned the secret of being content in every circumstance, even in jail. What a challenge that is for us. Don't worry. Be anxious for nothing. As you pointed out, that's a magnificent command for us because it means that the, the, the burden of worrying has been removed from us. So, Troy, just read it, enjoy it, and before you really go online and, and dig any of the historical background, read Philippians. Uh, I, I did an experiment with the church, and I've talked about this uh, uh, at our church many times, but, you know, one of the complaints that we have about... Um, reading our Bibles is we don't have enough time. And and one time I just took the whole book of Philippians and uh, cut it out just want to see how, how many words it was and how many paragraphs. And I, I, I figured out that it would only take up about two-thirds of the front page of the sports section of the San Antonio Express News. And we think nothing of reading the newspaper. We think nothing about going online and, and, and reading the news. Uh, we think nothing about spending hours on Facebook or other social media. In 20 minutes, if you're an average reader, you can read the entire book of Philippians. That means if you're willing to commit a half hour a day, that gives you time to really read it, read it out loud, let the, let the, the, the ears hear and the, and the eyes see and the heart comprehend. And repetition is so valuable because God will write it deeper in your heart every time. I'm guessing, now I, I don't say this to sound spiritual, but I'm guessing I've read the book of Philippians 250 times in my life, give or take a few. But reading it, because it's living and active, it meets you where you are. So read it out loud. Um, uh, try, I didn't catch whether you said you were reading it with a wife or just reading it yourself, but, but one of the things that I've learned because I'm visually impaired is the value of, of out loud reading and the, the wonderful work that God does in knitting the hearts of husbands and wives together when they read the word together. Paula reads to me over and over and over and over. We kind of get ripped off some days if we're really in a hurry and she only gets to read a passage a couple of times. This morning was one of those times, you know, she read the passage that I'm teaching tonight a couple of times. And when you're reading, God is speaking. But supernaturally, and this is hard for new Christians or unbelievers to understand, but supernaturally, he's knitting our hearts together in his word. And there's just nothing better. And we've been doing it now for a long time because um, I, I haven't driven a car in like 18 and a half years. And um, it gets, reading really is arduous for me, laborious. Um, so she reads to me over and over and over. And the work that, that God has done in our hearts and in our marriage, 
the, the work that he's done in speaking to us in that living and active word is an amazing thing to consider. So, Troy, thank you for, for, for really hearing me. And uh, call back and let me know as the Lord begins to share your heart. Philippians is a great one. i got another assignment for you. When you're done with Philippians, read it maybe ten times. And when you're done with that, go to Ephesians, especially the first three chapters. Read them repeatedly over and over and over again. So you and your wife together, it'll be a blessing. Thanks a lot. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We can also, uh, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. Um, we're just inside a minute. I don't have time to go to another question. Uh, let me remind you or just plead with you to keep our kids, uh, both the little kids and our high school age kids, in your prayers. They are all at camp. Uh, Pastor Richard Ortiz is uh, the primary speaker out there, but Pastor Nelly and all the other staff, the people that are providing the food for those hundreds of kids, um, they're working hard. It's hot. There's no air conditioning, uh, but they're having a blast. Kids always give their heart to Jesus. There's a river full of water, so baptisms will happen. I can't wait till they get back. Hey, you hear the music? We've got 30 minutes left in this week. You're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to our final 30 minutes of the week 340-9585 for your live calls and questions here's a question that was just called into the studio uh, anonymously uh, what do the bread and wine from the last supper stand for why did Judas only eat the bread and not the wine? Anonymous, evidently you are a new believer or an unbeliever, and this thrills me to be able to tell you what these things stand for. Now, the bread and the wine from what we call the Last Supper um, were symbols of what Jesus was about to do. Now, I want you to consider the circumstances. He's in a room with 12 of his disciples, their hearts are crushed. Their hearts are absolutely broken. They've, they've lost all hope because they finally realize that Jesus is going to die. They were hopeful that things would turn out different. They, 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 they walked through this last week with Jesus. It started with what we call the triumphal entry, which is a terrible name, by the way. But it looked good, at least outwardly, like, like everybody wanted him to be the Messiah. They wanted him to be the king. And now we've gotten to this Passover meal. And Jesus picks up the bread. There's 12 of his disciples. He breaks it and says, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. God is a God of justice. And sin has to be punished. God can't wink at sin, Anonymous. And so the bread, he said, is his body, figuratively speaking. He was still in his body when he said it. He said, my body's going to be broken so yours doesn't have to. Now, uh, because these are the communion elements, Anonymous, uh, whenever I give communion, uh, I, I go into some detail on this because it's important for us to understand. His body was previews. I'm going to go to the cross. They're going to nail my hands and feet. They're going to beat my face mercilessly. They're going to insult me, humiliate me. They're going to walk in front of me and spit on my face. Jesus allowed all of that to happen so that none of it would happen to us. And Judas was still there. Now, they would have gone on with the meal in the other Gospels. We hear that, that, uh, that uh, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you in this room will betray me this very day. And they all asked who it was, and Jesus said the one who dips his hand in the, 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 the sauce with me, his, in the bowl with me, he's the betrayer. And at that moment, 
Jesus' and Judas' hand met in that very place where they were dipping bread to eat? And that's when he looked at Judas and said, what you do, do quickly. And Judas had to leave. Now, at this point in Communion Anonymous, I always tell our church that Communion is a family celebration. And Judas couldn't participate in the cup, which represented his blood shed for the sins of the world, because Judas didn't belong to Jesus. So the bread represents his body, the punishment he took for us. The cup represents the blood that was shed that we would never die. Physically, of course, we give out, but but spiritually, we, we never die. In fact, when we go to be with Jesus, that's when we live. And later in that meal, now Judas is gone. Jesus picks up the cup. And then he says this wonderful thing. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant. Now, we know this was the cup of redemption. It was set out at every Passover meal, but it would never be used because they were waiting for the Christ. He was the only one who could do it. So when Jesus picked up that cup of redemption, everybody... Their eyes would be wide open. They'd be amazed. And he didn't say what they expected him to say. They expected him to say, this cup of redemption, I'm going to come and redeem Israel. I'm going to establish my kingdom. But that's not what he said. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant written in my blood. I call it the cup of grace, God's unmerited favor to the infinitely deserving. And that's the cup that gives us life because he was killed we live but because he gave us his spirit we thrive so that's why Judas only ate the bread and not the wine you can't drink the symbol of his blood unless you belong to him it's also why I tell people it's a family celebration. If you are not born again, and, have, and I explain what being born again means, if you have no intention of being born again, I say, you know, it's better not to take the, the elements, just pass on them, and I let them know we'll be dismissing in a few minutes. Just be patient with us. And then anonymous, I give them a chance to become believers. And then I tell them, if you've asked Jesus in their heart, not only are you a believer, but you're the guest of honor at the table. So anonymous, just in case you're not a born-again Christian, let me invite you to ask Jesus into your heart. Ask Jesus to forgive you. Because he died, you don't have to. Because he was punished, you never have to face judgment. And the only way to do that is to be born again. By that I mean you ask for forgiveness, you tell Jesus you can't live a better life without his help, you give him control of your life, and new life begins all over again. The old you dies, and the new you springs to life every day with Jesus. If you want to do that, just tell him. Just tell him. And then wherever it is you go to church, whoever it is that you're talking to that's a Christian, tell them what you've done, and let them give you some help about what comes next, because what comes next with this cup of the new covenant is spectacular. Anonymous, thank you for the question. We'll be praying for you. 340-9585. Uh, here's another anonymous question. Interesting one. Why is it that Christians almost never dress up for church anymore? Is it being disrespectful to God? Anonymous, the only thing that is really disrespectful to God is if we don't dress up our hearts. God doesn't look at the outside the same way people do. God looks at the heart. And I can honestly tell you that the last consideration at the throne of God is how dressed up we are or are not, physically. What matters to God is, is our heart dressed up. You know, we're one of those churches that, that has no dress code. We have people, if you come here on a Sunday, you'll see people in suits and ties. You'll see ladies who are nicely dressed up. Uh, you'll see people that come in in shorts and flip-flops especially during the summertime. You'll see people in jeans. You'll see people with slacks and nice shirts. But my point is, in, in every state of dress, you'll see them as they come into this church. And here's what I've always told the people at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio Anonymous. I've told them, look, all I ask you to do is spend more time getting your heart ready for church than you do your body. And if you'll do that, we're pleased to have you come wearing anything that the Lord has provided for you to come. 
And we want them to understand the only disrespectful thing. Imagine this for a moment. Imagine getting all dressed up, looking like a million dollars, and coming to church with an ugly heart. Coming to church with an unrepentant heart, knowing that maybe Saturday you were involved in sin, or Friday night you were involved in sin. That's disrespectful to God. So it's not the outer clothing. What matters is the inner clothing. And if we are truly going to disrespect God, we do so by coming with ugly hearts. You know, Anonymous, over the years, I've seen all different kinds of trends. I've seen people get out of their cars in the parking lot in in big churches where it's really crowded and it's hard to find a parking place. Get out of uh, get out of their car dressed up beautifully, but angry because they're arguing with one another. They're angry because they had to park so far away. Their kids were bugging them. I think about so many homes on a Sunday, knowing that the enemies try to stir the pot. I think about all the homes where there's intention and yelling going on at home before they go to church. That's disrespectful. We need to get our hearts ready. That's the only thing that matters to God. So I hope that answers your question. Dress however you're comfortable. Dress modestly. But dress however you're comfortable. But spend more time getting your heart ready than your body. Thanks for the question. Here's a question from Frank. Frank says, Pastor Ron, do you think it is right for sons to take over for their fathers as pastors? Uh, Frank, yeah, if if the sons are called. You know, I have a, a, a pastor friend whose son took over for him some years ago. And his son was the object, because this was a big church, his son was the object of all kinds of criticism. Oh, this is nepotism, and, you know, the only um, the only reason he's the pastor is because his father was the pastor, and he passed it down to him. And, and it's really troubled him. And this young man asked his father, he said, is that true? Is the only reason that I am the pastor of this church now because I'm your son? And his father looked at him and said, have you ever thought about this? Maybe the only reason you were my son is to prepare you to be the pastor. If a man is called by God, then it's all right. If a son is given the pastorate just because he's a son and he's not a godly man, he's not a a man who really is in love with God's word, if there isn't abundant Christian fruit coming from his life, then no, it's not right. The man that's going to take over from me, Pastor Ken, who fills in for me on this radio program from time to time, he always teaches on the Sundays when I'm gone. Uh, He's not my son in the flesh, not my son by blood, but he's more of a son to me than I can explain adequately to you. I mean, we we share the same beating heart. Uh, When I listen to his teaching, I hear me. And that's not what makes him good. What makes him good is his great heart. But the idea is that we're one together. And I want the people here at Calvary Chapel, as I get old, especially in this past year when I've dealt with health issues, I want everybody to know that there is a plan. Now, if one of my sons would say, Dad, I'm getting saved. I want to come and follow you as a pastor. I'd say, no, God's called Pastor Ken. But why don't you come and start at the bottom and we'll see what God does. That's the way it ought to be done. So I hope that answers your question, Frank. Thanks a lot. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Josh wants to know, can you be a Christian and believe in evolution? Uh, Yeah, you can, Josh, but not for long. Uh, I think probably most of the people that surrender their hearts to Jesus for the very first time Um, most of them believe in evolution because that's what's been crammed down their throats and crammed into their brains from the time they began school. Um, You know, one of the requirements of being born again isn't that you believe in a literal six-day creation. But here's the idea. Once the Spirit of God comes and lives in you, Jesus said, when he comes, he will lead you, the Spirit of truth, he will lead you into all truth. I think at that point, because we're new creatures, new creations, then we have to let God 
change our thinking. We've got to look at the Bible and, and see what it says and then decide, do we believe what the Bible says or do we believe what a, a, a professor in college says? Do we believe what the public schools teach or do we believe what Genesis teaches? And when I said you can be a believer and a Darwinist or an evolutionist, but not for long, it's because when God takes over in your heart and in your mind, he changes you. And I've said on this program many times, it's a Christian's job to agree with our Christ. And Jesus affirmed Adam and Eve. Jesus affirmed the six-day creation. Jesus affirmed the idea of a biblical marriage. And so what happens is, as we are changed, transformed, Romans 12 says, by the renewing of our mind, the making new, new thinking, well, then we start to change our opinions so that they conform with his. And make no mistake, his opinion is the only one that matters because he's the only one that makes the rules. He sets the standards. What I will say, Josh, is that if there is somebody who is a Christian or claims to be a Christian and has been uh, a professing Christian for any length of time, uh, you know, a couple years, five years, ten years, and believes in evolution, believes it's true, uh, then then I would really question their salvation because that's a mind that hasn't been uh, transformed. Uh, that's a mind that's still thinking um, based on the, 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 the foolishness of this world, a world that says there is no God. So I think you have to be eventually conformed into the image of God. And when you are, you'll agree with God. It's just that simple. You know, and I've said this before, but Josh, if you believe in evolution, or if you believe in anything other than Adam and Eve were the first two people made directly by the finger of God. If you don't take the first 11 chapters of Genesis literally as it's written, there really was a serpent that spoke. There really was a tree of choice in the Garden of Eden. Uh, I think you can conclude that the earth is fairly young. I think less than 10,000 years of age. Uh, I, I, I constantly marvel at how sure the world is of the things they don't know anything about. If you don't believe in those things, then every basic doctrine, every foundational doctrine of our Christian faith falls apart. If Adam wasn't the first human ever created by God from nothing, ex nihilo, then Jesus lied to us. Romans 5 becomes a fairy tale. Because Romans 5 says that Adam is our federal head. The first Adam, thankfully followed by the second Adam, of course, Jesus. One sin brought death for all. One life, one righteous life, gave life to all who will receive. So it's really important. You can't be an evolutionist for long because that demonstrates that you don't agree with God. It also demonstrates, by the way, Josh, that you're not spinning, and I don't, I'm not talking to you personally, but whoever this question pertains to, you're not spending any time in your Bible. You're not really digging in to find out if the Bible really is the Word of God or if it's just a book written by men. You see, these are the challenges, these are the questions that we have to deal with every single year of our lives. We've, we've got to dig in more and more. And we've got to come to this place where we decide once and for all, if the Bible is the Word of God, then we've got to do what it says. We've got to believe it as it's written. If it's not, then we've got to decide we've got no God at all who left us with nothing but to do what seems right to us. And obviously that means we're not saved in the process. So, Josh, I hope that makes sense to you. We've still got a little bit of time left in the program, 340-9585. Uh, Gene wants to know, do you think there's a way that we can tell uh, gays um, that what they're doing is wrong without offending them? Um, Gene, I wouldn't be concerned about offending them. I really wouldn't. No. It should never be our intent to offend, to be sure. Uh, we tell the truth in love because we want people saved. Now, 
It is true, however, that many, even perhaps most, are going to be offended. We say that what you're doing is wrong because the Bible says it's sin. Now, the one thing that we should not do at that point is keep beating on the fact that what they're doing is sin. We need to tell them about the one who can rescue them from sin. They need to hear the gospel. Jesus was was real. He was a man. He lived. He died. He didn't stay dead. Proving that what he said he came to do, and that's to set us free from our sins, to give us new and abundant life. Here's what I can tell you about the, the LGBT lifestyle. There's an emptiness. There's a pain masked, to be sure, at times. People are good actors. Before I got saved, I was a great actor. But we know there's an emptiness of heart. We know that the lifestyle that they're living doesn't bring them joy. It doesn't bring them hope. It doesn't give them a promise of a future. It brings them pain. Now, it's fun, briefly, for them. But we know there's still emptiness. Sin is fun for a minute, and then the pain comes. And Gene, you and I, we have the answer for that pain. Sort of like somebody comes and says, man, i got a really bad headache. Well, I've got some aspirin. You want some? They'd say, oh, thank you. Well, we've got the spiritual aspirin for their pain. And what we need to do is tell them about that rather than argue with about lifestyle. In fact, we shouldn't even focus on their lifestyle. If we're going to focus on lifestyles, it should first be our own. If we're going to focus on lifestyles, it should next be other Christians. Why is it that we Christians say nothing of professing Christians who divorce for any reason they want to? Why is it we think nothing of a Christian who gets drunk occasionally, like it's no big deal? A Christian sinning is far bigger a deal than an unbeliever sinning. Because too much is given, much is required. And we need to stop looking out, start looking in. Judgment begins at the house of God. And then we can tell people. Now, when you tell them and they still get offended, don't blame me. That's on them. If they take offense, isn't it true that our Bible says the cross of Christ is an offense? All we have to do is make sure our heart is right before God, our lives are right before God, and that we didn't intend offense. But instead, we told them the truth in love because we wanted them to be in heaven. So, Gene, that's the best I can do with that one. 340-9585. How am I doing on time? Well, I don't have time, I don't think, for any more questions or any more phone calls, so I won't give the phone number again. Here's a question from Jennifer. Can you clarify whether or not the promises in the Old Testament to Israel now transfer to the church? Have these promises transferred to the church instead of Israel? The answer, Jennifer, is no, they have not. Uh, It's one of the mistakes that we made in hermeneutics in our Bible interpretation. Uh, we, we, We forget reading the Bible in light of who the passages of Scripture are written to. Now, we know God, Colossians says, the literal Greek is he's a not-lying God. If God doesn't fulfill every promise that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, later to Moses and to David, if he doesn't fulfill every promise, then God is a liar. So the promises he made to them are promises for national Israel. So those promises... I know we like them. I know the plans I have for you. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven says, uh, we, we, we know uh, the, the promises that God was sharing to the, those in exile in Babylon and those under attack in Jerusalem when they were being judged by God using uh, either Assyria or, or Babylon enemy armies. Uh, we, we love those passages of Scripture, but they only have tangential import for us because they're written to Israel as a nation. The promises that you and I have, Jennifer, as New Testament Christians, are far more glorious. Not only do they apply to the body of Christ, the true church of Christ, 
but they apply to every one of us individually, and we can take those promises in the context they're written. I like that Troy made a, a point of saying, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, and saying, well, you know, reading that in context, it means a whole lot different than we thought it did. But you and I, Jennifer, we have better promises, surer promises, than any of the Old Testament patriarchs ever had. God in us, the hope of glory. I'll never leave you or forsake you because the Spirit of God, another Jesus, lives within us. So the promises to Israel will be fulfilled. And they will be fulfilled in the millennial reign after the Great Tribulation, after Jesus returns, sets his feet on the Mount of Olives and destroys the world that has rebelled against him. And national Israel will once again be a place where all of the nations of the, of the world, all of the peoples want to come. Israel will be a place where Jesus will sit on the throne of his forefather David, ruling for a thousand years with perfect justice. Those promises, every one of them will be fulfilled. Now, you and I, as I say, they're better promises. Our promise will be fulfilled on the day he calls us to be with him whether it's naturally or via the rapture of the church. Our promises will be fulfilled, will be the guest of honor at that wedding banquet, that wedding supper of God. When we are officially, we're betrothed now, but then we'll be married to him. That's why I won't be married to Paula. Can you imagine? 47 years we've been together, and I won't be married to Paula because we'll both be married to Jesus. Now, God's going to make her hang around with me, so I'm okay. But we're going to be married to Jesus. I can't wait. Hey, it's been a great week on the program. Thank you for the many, many calls. Remember tonight we're going to finish Acts chapter 1 and Romans chapter 8, just one verse on Sunday. Keep our kids and youth and servants at the camp in your prayers. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Have your most Jesus weekend ever. See you Monday, Lord willing. Bye-bye. for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.